Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. There are certain phrases or um, just idioms that when I say conjure up a whole context... If I were to say to you, a miracle on ice, does that create a context for some of you that uh, go back a few years anyway? Okay? Miracle on ice. What was that? Huh? 1980. That was a long time, Chris. Yeah. There's some people that weren't around in 1980 here. Okay. All right. Okay. Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor conjures up an entire context. The, the, the crash, the crash in terms of economics would conjure up a whole context, especially for some of those who lived through that. 9-11, right? An entire context comes to mind. 1776. In Jewish uh, teaching and culture among the rabbis, uh, there's one word that conjures up an entire context. And it's simply the Akita. The Akita. Because in Hebrew, the Akita means the binding. The binding. And the phrase the Akita conjures up the binding of Isaac. The binding of Isaac and Abraham's sacrifice and offer of Isaac. It's a very important point in Jewish history from their perspective. And Father Abraham bound Isaac, the Akita. And this morning, that's going to be our context for Hebrews chapter 11, if you open your Bibles there, as we have been studying the book of Hebrews together, and we're looking at some of these uh, important biblical figures who are connected with the concept of faith. Faith in chapter 11, the faith chapter. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word and look at this very important account, and the lessons that we can apply to our lives. Uh, We thank you for your word. We thank you that in your grace and mercy you gave us your revealed word that we can have to not only study, to contemplate, but also to live by. And we pray as we open your word now that your words would be heard and that uh, we would have open hearts and tender hearts toward them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we um, had sort of lesson one in the story of uh, Abraham, one of the heroes of the faith, one of the men of faith. And we looked at that in, uh, last week in verse 8, by faith Abraham when called to go to a place. And we talked about the fact that Abraham uh, and Sarah and the patriarchs lived their entire life in, in tents and in movement in Bedouin, if you will, in Palestine, in the land that was given to them as their inheritance. And then we had a little break, and he, he has a little interlude there about these people of faith in uh, verses four, in verses 13 through 16. Then we come back to Abraham. By faith, and please remember that word, faith. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son. 
even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. The Akita, the story of Abraham offering his one and only, and you might recognize that phrase because that's the same phrase that's used about the Lord Jesus Christ, God's one and only or the only begotten Son of God. This is Abraham's only begotten. He has other children, but this is the only begotten of the promise, Isaac, through whom everything that God has promised depends on Isaac. So I'd like us to go back to Genesis chapter 22 as we consider this account of the Akita, the binding of Isaac. You go back to Genesis chapter 22 and the story of Abraham's life as we actually are coming uh, closer to the end of his life uh, in the book of Genesis. Abraham is considered the first of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and some consider Joseph as well. Uh, incidentally, as we think about some of these uh, details from the Bible in the Old Testament, you'd be in prayer, our Bible instruction class. Some of you that uh, have been here for a while know formerly it was called Confirmation. It's uh, something we've done since our church began. Um, I went through Confirmation when I was in junior high school. And uh, it's a two-year program. They study the Old Testament for one year and the New Testament and church doctrine for another year. And then they have a graduation, if you will, a time that we share with you. So next Sunday morning for our all-church coffee break, the reason it's an all-church coffee break is we're going to stay in the gym and we're going to have our final exercises, if you will, where the young people will be sharing with you. And that means they have 200 questions that they need to know the answers to. They're not going to answer all 200 of them, but they don't know which ones they are. And so they are in the process right now of reviewing those questions, okay? And it'd be things like that, you know, who are the patriarchs? Uh, and some are a little more complicated, some are pretty straightforward, some are conceptual. And we'll be sharing that with you next Sunday morning during the Sunday school hour. So I encourage you to come and be a part of that and uh, encourage and support our young people as they've made a, quite a commitment for two years to come an extra hour each week to study with uh, Susie and Pastor Gary and myself uh, through our Bible instruction class. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. Now, I know that some of the translations maybe use the word tempt, but it really is, <clears throat> it really is the Hebrew word to test, to put to the test, to test. Testing is not a bad thing. Testing is not a painful thing. It's not a negative thing. Um, next week, we're going to test, if you will, our, uh, our Bible instruction students. It's an encouraging thing. It's a discipline. It's a positive thing. And it, it, this is not a temptation to sin. This is not a temptation. This is a test, and that really is what the word is. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And Abraham, the only words he speaks to God in this account, in the Hebrew says, Hineni. It's a very short phrase, Hineni. Here I am. Here I am, God. God calls to him. Obviously, I think it's audibly because, you know, he calls to him and Abraham says he recognizes God's voice. He recognizes the voice of God. And he says, here I am. And the Lord God said to him, take your son 
your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a holocaust, as a burnt offering. On one of the mountains, I will tell you about. Now, if like myself, if you've grown up in church or spent time in the Bible, this, this is not a new story. And in fact, as readers of the story, we are given a little introduction and a little bit extra that Abraham is not. We are told God is testing Abraham. Abraham's not told that. You know that, and I know that, and Moses wrote this, and everybody that's read this since and knows this. But Abraham does not know this. And God asks of Abraham, the only thing I can say is the, the unthinkable. The unthinkable. To take his son, and, you, and look at the detail, the kind of the slow, agonizing detail of this request. Your son, your only begotten, Itzhak, laughter, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. Take him, tie him up, put a knife to his throat, to drain the blood, and burn him up as a sacrifice to God. Now we need to let that sink in for a minute. I am a parent. Many of you here today are parents or grandparents. And if not, you have loved ones. You have nephews and nieces. You have children in your neighborhood. Uh, According to Jewish tradition, and it's a tradition that the rabbis have, that at this time Abraham is about 137 and Isaac is 37. There are different views on it, but at least we know this. Isaac is a fully grown young person. He is at least, you know, as big as you guys that are young men here. He may be 37 years old, according to Jewish tradition. He is not a baby. He is not an infant. He is not a preschooler. Um, He is a young man. And everything that God has promised depends on Isaac. Because God said to him, He didn't say, Abraham, in one of your children will all these blessings, a land, a people, worldwide blessing, will all these things come to pass. He said specifically in Isaac, these things will come to pass. In Isaac. So everything God has promised depends on Isaac living and having children. The Jewish Publication Society, I, I, it, I find it interesting in passages like this to read some of the, the Jewish commentaries written by the rabbis and teachers. The Jewish Publication Society has a series on the books of Moses, the Torah. And from this passage on Genesis, it says this. This is the ultimate trial of faith. It brings to a close Abraham's spiritual odyssey that began with God's call at Haran, the first theophany, or first appearing to God, where he takes leave of his father's house. The last theophany, the last appearance of God, is to take leave of his son. He is to abandon all hope of posterity. This is the life of this patriarch. 
His story begins. Abraham, leave everything. Leave everything you know, everything you're comfortable with. Leave it all. Go with your family to Haran, and from there when your father dies, go down to Canaan. Leave everything. And now as he comes to the end of his life, the last time God appears to him, Abraham, leave everything. Leave your son. This is a story, my friends, of the giver and the gift. Who is this story about? The giver and the gift. Who is more important? The giver or the gift that is given? Abraham is put to the test. He is asked the unthinkable. Everything depends on Isaac living. What is the reason for this? Well, we've already read. It begins. And it simply says, sometime later, God tested him. But why would God ask this? Why would you test, why would you test Abraham with this? We know later in the scriptures how clear it is that God hates human sacrifice. This was practiced in, in the old world. We know that. We know that they sacrificed humans. In fact, they sacrificed their babies as appeasement to their gods. They would kill their own children. They would kill others as a sacrifice to appease and to please gods who didn't even exist. And God makes it clear that he abhors that. It is immoral. Why would God ask Abraham to do something immoral and to sacrifice his only begotten son? Well, I don't know the reason to that. You know, God is not obligated to us to explain everything that he does and why he does it. You or I probably wouldn't have done it this way. No, there are other ways to test his faith. Isaac could have got very sick, near death, on his deathbed, and Abraham have to plead for his life and God bring him back. There are a myriad of ways. Isaac could have been saved from a terrible accident. There are all sorts of ways this could have taken place. But to ask him to kill him and burn him up, I don't know why God did that. We are given a hint, as much as we're going to get, at the end of the story. But he whose name means laughter is about to become the most tragic story and the personification of tragedy in Bible history. Abraham's response. Early, verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham had a night to sleep on it if he slept. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants, uh, Jewish tradition, some Jewish tradition. The, the commentary suggests the two servants were Eleazar and Ishmael. That's, uh, Ab- that's Abraham's other son, Eliezer or Ishmael and his servant Eliezer. We don't know. That's a tradition. He took two sons, two two servants, took his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. 
And he said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Now, if we were in a smaller class setting today, I know many of you attended Sunday school this morning, and we have an opportunity in those situations to maybe ask questions and interact and get you to talk a little bit. If we were in a smaller setting where it was comfortable for you to turn and talk to four or five people and discuss this, I would ask you this question. So I'm going to ask you this question, and you can discuss it with yourself, okay? Go back a couple of chapters in Genesis. Go back to chapter 18 at the end of it. Let me just rehearse the story real quickly here. When, when Abraham is given the promise of this, this son that is coming, and I want you to notice as he, as he, this story unfolds, as Abraham is walking with his angels, all of a sudden the angels stop and it's the Lord and says, am I going to hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? I need to tell him what, and he says, Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah, you need to get Lot out of there because I am going to destroy that city. Their wickedness has come up before me, and I am going to destroy this city. You need to get out of there, get, get Lot out of there. And what does Abraham do? You remember what he does? What's he do? He argues, he debates with God, he bargains with God, and he begins, he begins and says, God, would you destroy, would you destroy this city? Look at verse 24. What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And then he says, after God says, okay, 50. Then he says, God, let's talk 40. Would you do it for 40? Yes, I, I will save... 30, 20, 10. Abraham bargains with God and he gets down finally and says, Lord, don't be angry. Verse 32, but let me speak once more. What if only 10 can be found? And God says, okay, Abraham, if you can find 10 righteous people, I will not destroy that city and the discussion's over. But when his own son is going to be killed, Abraham doesn't bargain. Abraham doesn't ask God, why would the righteous judge of the earth, wouldn't he do right and not evil? And when his own son, his very own son, come on fathers, his own child, and Abraham doesn't say anything. He doesn't bargain with God. He sleeps on it. And he gets up the next day, and he's heading off to do it. Why would he do this? And you get this, it's it's really amazing. You kind of get this almost sort of slow motion story here, don't you? This agonizing detail. This slow motion story back in chapter 22. Where he takes the wood and he puts it on Isaac in verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering. And he says, we're going to worship. And that's the word used. We're going to worship. And he says, we will come back. He tells these two, these, these two servants who are left here, and he says, we will come back. 
but he's going to go kill him. And Isaac becomes both the burden bearer and the sacrifice. He puts it on Isaac. And he himself, that is Abraham, carried the fire, the fire utensil, and the knife. And the two of them went up together. And for the first time, Isaac says something. He is a young man. He is, he is, he's looking around at the situation, and he says, finally he says something. He says, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? We have no offering. And Abraham simply says, God himself will see to it. Now, the word there is provide, but the word in the Hebrew is God will see to it. It's actually the root from the word see. Ra'ah. God will see to it. God will see to it that the lamb for the burnt offering is provided, my son. And the two of them go on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar. It's a slow motion story here. Abraham builds the altar. He arranges the wood on it. And then the akita, the binding. He binds his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, you have to stop and read between the lines a little bit here. They've gone three days. They're going to worship. Abraham says they're coming back. He builds the altar big enough for a full-grown son. He, How did Isaac get up on that altar? Abraham is 137 years old, maybe. This is not the era when people live to be six or 800 years old. And many commentaries, of course, point out Isaac has got to be submissive and have an active part. Abraham is not going to pick him up, tied up, and put him on the altar. That is not going to happen. The only way it's going to happen is if Isaac gets allows himself to get on that altar and allows himself to be tied up. And the binding of a sacrifice animal would be binding the hands and binding the feet so it can't go. You've seen pictures of that. But Isaac has, has to help. Isaac has to be willing to do this. What is he thinking? What is Isaac thinking? What is he watching? What, what is going on in their minds? They aren't talking to each other. But he allows himself to be placed on the altar. And then finally, the, the, the epitome of it. In verse 10, Abraham reaches out his hand and he takes the knife to slay his son. And you slay an animal on the altar by slicing its throat. It's the least painful, it's the fastest, and the blood to drain out. He is going to slice his son's throat and then put him on fire. And he does it. He's going to do it. And he, he lifts up, the, he lifts up the, the knife and he doesn't lift it up and wait for God to do something. He is fully intending to do this. And it's at that point in verse 11 that the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, stop. And he says once again, here I am. Here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. 
Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. It was very interesting as I studied this, and I got to thinking about this as I looked at some of the commentaries I have from a rabbinical perspective. And I got to thinking, what, what's the, what is kind of the rabbinical take on this? What, what is their understanding of this? And it was very interesting that, and in fact, you'll find this on a fairly significant large Jewish website of Orthodox rabbis, that they see here a connection with the slaying of Isaac and resurrection. I hadn't seen this before. I thought that was fascinating. That just the Old Testament context, not the New Testament, not anything from just the Old Testament context. Here's what a rabbi, a fairly well-known, respected scholar, Rabbi Dressler, Dressler he, he, this is what he said. He draws a connection between the binding of Isaac and the resurrection. And he says this. When the sword, and of course this is speculation, doesn't say this in the text, I understand that, okay? When the sword touched Isaac's neck, his soul flew out of his body. But when the angel's voice emerged from between the cherubim, do not send your hand, it returned. Isaac stood on his feet and glimpsed the resurrection. The dead would all rise and return to life just as he had. At that moment, he authored the second blessing in the silent Amida prayer. Blessed are you, God, who revives the dead. The binding of Isaac breached the walls of death and placed our feet on the road that ends in Tekiyat Hametim, the resurrection of the dead. And Isaac personifies the resurrection in Jewish thought. That is really interesting that the conclusion is that Isaac slew his son, as it were, even though no blood was spilt. But their thought is Isaac actually was ready to slice it and God stopped him and that maybe he was even in the process and God said, don't do any more. And is connected with the resurrection. And they connect that with this thought that Abraham says, we will return to you. Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, we are told, we are told why Abraham did this. Why would he do this? Why would he willingly take his son? Why didn't he argue with God? Why didn't he debate? Why didn't he negotiate? Why did he do this? Why didn't he say, no, God, I know this is not something you would want. The author of Hebrews flat out tells us what Abraham is thinking. We go back to chapter 11 where we started in verse 17. And after verse 18 where we are told, remember, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. Through Isaac, nobody else. Abraham reasoned. He reckoned. He logically came to the conclusion that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac 
back from death. Listen, do you see what Abraham is thinking? Abraham is reasoning. It's reasoning. It's not simply a hope. He's come to the conclusion. This is God's problem. God is asking me to do something that is completely unthinkable. I have no idea why God's asking me to do this. But I'm going to do it. And I'm going to kill him. And I'm going to burn him up. And when I'm finished, all that's going to be left is a pile of ashes. It's the Holocaust. That's all that's going to be left of Isaac is ashes. And Abraham reasons in his heart. He has such faith, unbelievable faith in God, that he believes in his heart. You know what? This is God's problem. He's going to have to bring him back to life. And we are going to walk back down that mountain together. No one has ever been raised from the dead. He has no reason to believe that except his amazing faith and trust in God. And the author here tells us, as does Genesis, that as far as God's concerned, Abraham sacrificed Isaac. He did it. It was a done deal. He did it because of his faith in God. Well, let me just read to you back in Genesis as we conclude the story. The story comes to this conclusion. Abraham looks up, verse 13, and there all along, caught in the thicket, is a ram caught by his horns. He went over, he took the ram, and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering. He slit its throat. He burnt the ram to ashes and offered it to God. Isaac is watching this whole thing. Isaac didn't say a word, but he's watching that ram turn into ashes instead of him. And Abraham simply says, I got a name for this place. We, Isaac, are going to call this and we're going to leave this place and we're never coming back. We are never coming back here again. We're going to leave this place and we're going to call it, we say in our language, Jehovah Jireh. In the Hebrew, it would be Yahweh Yireh. We are going to call this place, the Lord will see to it. God will see to it. Because on this mountain, on this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And God rehearses for Abraham once again. Abraham, because you've done this, I am reaffirming to you because you, as he says in verse 16, look, he says, you have not withheld your son, your only begotten. As far as God's concerned, he did it. And that place was called this is where God will see to it. And incidentally, we'll see in Chronicles that this place that Abraham leaves that day turns out to be the very same place where the temple in Jerusalem will stand. We'll look at that tonight. The reason the Dome of the Rock, if you've seen that picture of the Dome of the Rock, 
The reason it's where it is, it is over a slab of rock that from the Arabic and the Muslim perspective is where Ishmael was offered. That's why it's there. It's at this very place. Well, what can we learn from this? Hebrews 11 is the chapter on faith. And it is a chapter in this particular case of the testing, the testing of our faith. Does God test us today? Is that a scary word? Is that a bad word? Is that a negative thing that God could test us today. And I want you to be careful about this because you or I are not in a position to ever tell someone else, well, I know why God is doing this to you. You don't know why anything happens to anybody else. And don't ever pretend you do. Be careful with that. But this is the same epistle where we are told that God disciplines those he loves. Who, who, what, what son or daughter has never been disciplined by God, by their, by their parents? Discipline is a good thing. Testing is a good thing. And I believe God, yes, I believe God does bring things in our lives that are tests. I believe God permits things in our lives. Yes, I believe that. I I could never begin to understand the workings of God. He is God. He is not obligated to, to explain anything to me. I believe God permits things that he could stop. Yes, he could. I believe God brings things that he could choose not to. Because I believe that just as with your children, parents and grandparents, God loves us so much that he wants us to grow. And when all is said and done, if the result is that we come in points in our life where we really understand that God will see to it as he promised We can count on God. In closing, look at Romans chapter 5. The Apostle Paul writes this, which I think affirms this point. Romans chapter 5, written from an apostle who knew what it was like to go through testings and hardships and challenges and growth in his life as an apostle. Chapter 5 of Romans, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. There's a whole, there's a whole sermon right there. Peace with God. The alternative is not very good. Peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so. We don't just rejoice in the glory of God. But we also rejoice in our sufferings, our testings, life, life. You know what I'm talking about, life. We rejoice in this, Paul says. Why? Why would he say something so stupid? Why would he say this? He tells us because we know that suffering, that testing, that life produces Perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. 
And hope does not disappoint us. Why? Because God is a mean God that wants to test us? No, it's because, look what he says, God has poured out His love into our hearts by what? Come on, are you reading it? By what? The Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. God loves us so much that He has poured His love, His God is love. He has poured that love. You're a vessel. And you have received God's love because you have received the Holy Spirit. You have received the Shekinah presence of God yourself. You are a walking temple. Every place you go this week, the presence of God goes because the Holy Spirit has filled your life. And God is so interested in you and cares about you so much and loves me so much that everything that comes into my life that I would rather say, uh, God wouldn't do it that way. <laughs> but God says, no, it's because it's these very things that with the end result, they're going to leave you to appreciate like nothing else would how much I love you. How much I love you. Isaac. Never went back there probably. But he would never be the same. Isaac would never be this. If any father left a legacy of faith to his son, it was Abraham to Isaac. And they were the only two there to witness it. I wonder if they even I wonder who they told. But Isaac and friends, as we close our service today, um, it would not be appropriate to not at least mention the connection because clearly in the Bible, this story also, Isaac is a type of Christ. You read the rest of Romans chapter 5 and you come to verse 8, not the rest, but the middle. But God demonstrates, didn't just speak it, he did it, his own love to us in this way. While we were still sinners, not when we were good enough, not when we finally did enough to make God willing to receive us, while we were yet sinners. Does anybody know that better than Saul of Tarsus? Christ died for us. And it was the same story. Christ is Isaac. Christ bears the burden of the wood and he is the sacrifice. But the only difference is when God's, the Father's hand was about to slay his only beloved son, because that's what he did. It says in Isaiah 53, it pleased God to strike him. It pleased God to crush him. It pleased God to pour out his anger and his wrath against all my sin and against your sin and the sin of the world. It pleased God to pour it out on Christ. And the only difference is, there was no voice to say, Stop. Because if there had been, 
you and I would still be lost. We're going to close our service with a song this morning. This last week, the world lost a very, very important musician who impacted a lot of lives. George Beverly Shea. 104 years old. One of the founders of the Billy Graham Evangelical Association with Graham and Grady T- and the four guys that really started that group. And uh, George Bev Shea, as he was known back, and those who knew him close, Bev Shea shared his music and, and has been such an important part. There are people, myriads of people, who will be in heaven because of being saved through the Billy Graham Association Ministries. And, and a big part of it was George Bev Shea's ministry as well. When he was a young man, he had an opportunity to sign on with the recording uh, industry. And they said, I want to sing gospel songs. And they said, yeah, you guys sing the top hits. You can throw in a gospel song if you want. you got to sing the top hits. And he went home and he sat down at his piano. And there was a poem left there by someone who loved him on the piano, written by someone else with the words of the song we're going to sing. And he sat down and he looked at those words. And he started playing the music. And he wrote the music to that hymn. And after he finished, George Shea decided... His life was going into God's work. Hallelujah. Our Heavenly Father, we we just thank you for leaving us this uh, story, true story of Abraham and Yitzhak. And we thank you that uh, Abraham chose the giver over the gift because he trusted you. And Father, uh, we pray as we go our way this week that whatever gifts you have given us, and we we do thank you for them, but that we would always remember to choose the giver and that our lives this week would demonstrate that wonderful love and forgiveness that you gave to us that we can share with our world. We would rather have Jesus, and we thank you that he goes with us this week. In Christ's name.